Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by iSocialBoost.com. If you're trying to grow your Instagram following, maybe you're an aspiring outdoorsman or woman who is trying to attract sponsors or just get real life engaging followers, iSocialBoost has done wonders for my second page, which is called The Hunter's Legacy. I literally post once or twice a week. And I have like almost 9,000 followers in a few months. It's pretty ridiculous, to be honest with you, um, compared to how hard I've worked to grow the Lone Star Outdoors show page on my own. But anyway, go to isocialboost.com, use my promo code Lone Star. You'll get your first week for like 80% off. It's like five bucks. There's no contract, no commitment. If you're not satisfied with the amount of followers that you are generating, hey, it's free to cancel. But it's iSocialBoost. Go look at my page, Hunter's Legacy. They've grown that thing to nearly 9,000 followers in a very short amount of time. And they'll do the same for you, iSocialBoost.com. Smith, welcome everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Christmas down in Texas. Little Rich O'Toole kicking things off for us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and sharing a part of your holiday season with me. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today. I'm going to tell you all about it here in just a second, but I'll tell you what, it is truly a great time of the year to be spending Time outdoors with those who mean the most to you. And uh, I don't think that now with three young kids, I'll be doing any duck hunting on Christmas morning uh, as I did in my younger days. But who knows, as they get older, maybe we'll trade Santa in for shotguns and Christmas morning duck hunting. At least uh, that's my hope anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you, like I said. So here's what you do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pull yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos, the one that's still got mud caked on it from three duck seasons ago, because we're ready to get going here. And off the top, we'll be joined by Texas Parks and Wildlife Turkey Program Leader Jason Harden, and we'll take a look at perhaps the greatest conservation success story that we have in North American history, that of our turkeys, uh, all of the subspecies. I mean, we were down to 30,000 birds in the early 1900s, and you look at it today, it's up over 7 million. And that is because of the dedicated efforts of hunters and conservationists who saw value in protecting these resources. Um, there's some interesting stuff that goes into the tail of the turkey and, and how the states were able to bring their populations back. Each state did it a little differently as they weren't able to buy and sell turkeys from one state to another due to the Lacey Act, but you could trade other species for turkeys. And so there's some interesting stuff there uh, between like Texas and, and Louisiana, for example, that uh, Jason will get into here in just a bit. And then also uh, what's up with the eastern birds as the restocking effort continues year after year in the eastern part of the state. Uh, why hasn't that 
taken off like Texas Parks and Wildlife has hoped that it would. Uh, Jason answers those questions as well. Then we'll spend a couple segments at the bottom of the hour with our good friend Corey Knowlton, the uh, renowned big game hunter. Many of you know he bought the Black Rhino Hunt at the Dallas Safari Club auction a few years back and made national headlines, international headlines actually. CNN filmed that hunt and his entire family and, and friends for that matter went through hell and back uh, as part of that ordeal. Would he do it again? Um, that plus governor's tags, what units to put in for uh, when you're looking at a map, what should you key in on if you're a western big game hunter and you want to have a shot at the buck or bull of a lifetime. There are certain factors that determine where the biggest of the big when it comes to those species tend to hang out. Uh, Corey shed some light on that. What about the, uh, the hunting community cannibalizing itself from the inside out? Why is there still so much hate and jealousy from one hunter to another? It really shouldn't matter, right? I don't care how you hunt as long as you are abiding by the game laws. And, and really, you shouldn't care how I hunt. And We should be happy for each other, right? I certainly think so, uh, but that's far from the reality, and uh, Corey and I will get into that. Uh, and then also uh, this tragic eye injury that he suffered due to a firearm malfunction while on safari. He was on a leopard hunt in Tanzania with, you could say, lackluster medical care when this happened, uh, and he will give us the lowdown on what happened with that rifle, how it affected his vision then, and if he has recovered here six months later. Uh, so we'll get into all of that stuff with Corey, and I'm certainly looking forward to the conversation. Never a, a dull moment when he jumps on the broadcast. That's what's on the show for today. Going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. A couple other things. Our December Photo of the Month contest is going on. We've got the Lone Star Beer prize pack, which includes the Dove Seat Cooler, a camo cap, T-shirt, and thermos. Uh, so send in your best hunting or fishing outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Or use that LSOS photo contest hashtag on Instagram or tag me in Facebook. I just posted on our Facebook page wall. I'll see it and we'll get you entered. And then our monthly winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So another great grand prize package uh, brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got another box of Kent Fast Steel. This is a 12 gauge number three shot. And everyone who emails in the word steel shot, well, maybe that's two words, but steel shot to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. I will get you entered into this week's Kent cartridge drawing. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into perhaps North America's greatest conservation success story. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. If we make it through December, everything's going to be all right, I know. It's the coldest time of winter. And I shiver when I see the falling snow. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway. Hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. 
They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com, or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts just 30 minutes south of DFW if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs. You need to give them a call. Hunts are $250 a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is $150 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. We've all done things we wish we never did God knows we will a thousand times again But we are a blade that is made strong by fire Every heel has been hurt Every honest man has lied That's the latest there from Sean McConnell by request Shaking Bridges, the name of that one that one goes out to our good friend Jessica Byers. Y'all might know her. She's uh, at follow her arrow on the Instagram. But uh, anyway, Jess, big Sean McConnell fan, as am I. So uh, great suggestion there. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in today. I do appreciate each and every one of you as we're all set to get into what I believe to be North America's greatest conservation success story. But before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. And I'd personally like to invite you to become a member of this great group of like-minded folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, as far as educating the masses out there on why hunters do what we do and how it benefits all of God's creation. Uh, And then, of course, conservation. So hunters' rights, education, and conservation, that's the threefold mission statement of DSC. You can check us out at biggame.org. We'd love to have you. Um, Let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today. He is the Texas Parks and Wildlife Turkey Program leader, uh, a longtime friend of the show, and we visited regarding Longbeards many times over the years. It is my pleasure to welcome Jason Harden back to the broadcast. Thanks, Cable. Good to talk to you. Yeah, so I know you're staying busy overseeing our, our longbeard population. I think you're actually out in the field today. Yes, sir. Out of trying to set up some traps, going to start trapping turkeys next week. Right on. And so are these Easterns or Rios? And, and tell us why exactly you're trapping them. Well, we're down here in Lavo County. We're doing trapping for several reasons. So we, we still do a little bit of uh, restoration efforts for Rio Grande turkeys. Most of the state, we've had an incredible success with our our Rio Grande turkey restoration program. We have the highest densities of Rio Grande turkeys in the country, some of the highest densities of turkeys overall in the country. But when we have opportunities, we do try to continue to do restoration as habitat becomes suitable. And so that is that is one of the purposes for our trapping efforts. But we also uh, banned 
and release birds throughout the state. Mm-hmm. We've banned and released close to 5,000 birds over the last four years and uh, trying to get harvest rates on those birds. You know, what is our harvest rate? The, the tur- especially Rio Grande turkeys in Texas are not uh, pursued as, as heavily as, as in other states. So some states you may see up to 30% harvest rates. And in Texas, we estimate that it's definitely below 10%, maybe as low as 5%. But we don't have a good firm handle on that. Huh. And so by banning these birds, we can get an idea of harvest rates at different eco-regions, pair that up with our small game harvest survey, and get some density estimates off of that. So that's, uh, that's the main purpose of our trapping efforts. So is that because we don't have as rich of a turkey hunting culture, or just because we have so many dang birds that not as many of them are getting shot? You know, it, it's interesting. It, it, there are places in Texas where we just have a, a tremendous culture, but a lot of it goes back to this whole fall hunting culture. You know, we didn't have spring seasons in, in Texas until much later than a lot of other states, so there's a lot of that still ingrained. You know, get your Thanksgiving bird, get your uh, Christmas bird. Uh-huh. But it's starting to change. We're seeing seeing those trends, those trend lines change with fall harvest going down and spring harvest going up. So it's, we're building that culture. Uh, we're also a destination state, so a lot of people come to Texas to get their Rio Grande turkey. Yeah, lots of opportunities, lots lots of birds, but we are a private land state as well. And uh, a lot of people that own that land, turkeys have always been there. It's uh, it's it's almost like well, it's always there. If I want to go, I know I can go. It's easy, and they just don't get hunted that much. Yeah. So uh, so um, you know, lots of birds that don't get much much attention. Uh, from people that actually live where the birds are. I see. Yeah, and I'm one of those people who um, it's great to get a Thanksgiving or Christmas turkey, but I don't want to use one of my four tags. <laughs> I want to, Absolutely. I, I want to hunt them during I the think, spring. I think I've killed one one fall turkey in my whole life with my bow, and it's just a interesting opportunity that I had, so I took that bird with my bow. But uh, no, I want I want to talk to them. I want to I want to spring hunt, and there are people that actually go out and fall hunt and are specifically trying to get out, bust those birds up, bust up a, you know, 15, 20 bird flock, and then sit down and call those birds back in. Mm-hmm. And you can do that in the fall, but it's, it's just not a strong tradition in Texas. Yeah, yeah. From that perspective. It's more opportunistic. They're sitting in the deer stand, turkey walks out, so they take one. Absolutely. And people shoot, you can shoot them with a rifle in the fall, so. Absolutely. You yeah. shoot them with a rifle in the spring. Um, and, it, yeah, but and, that's still uh, so foreign uh, to me. I've never even considered it, you know? <laughs> no, no, I would not, would not consider it. It's uh uh, we have lots of opportunity to call birds in in shotgun range or bow range, and that, that that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jason, you know, the history of wild turkeys in our country is an interesting one. Essentially, Europeans thought Thanksgiving was every day when it came to turkeys because mm-hmm. those first early settlers shot the hell out of them. They shot them on sight every time they came across one. And that really intensified um, into the 1800s when they were, you know, targeted by market hunters. Uh, yes. Knocked down the wild turkey population by like 1900, early 1900s was was 30,000 birds. And you think about that, sounds like a big number, but I mean, there's more white rhinos left in Africa than there were yeah. uh, turkeys yeah. in our country, which is just mind blowing. So, what? Who are the? And obviously, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, considered the the grandfather of, of conservation uh, in North America. Was he instrumental in? in the turkey specifically or were there other folks that were um i mean obviously you're going to know more about it than than i do so i figured i'd ask you well that's a tough one cable you know i think it's a you know you you have those those people that you would kind of put up there like teddy roosevelt and 
and a few others that uh, that were kind of trailblazers in that in that field. But a lot of it just with the the general public, citizens in Texas, landowners. You could look down here at South Texas and the King Ranch, and that was one of the last strongholds. And a few of the landowners up in in North Texas, around Coleman, Concho, Runnels counties, where we had those last strongholds in Texas. Mm. You look at the those numbers that we had left, and a lot of those were real grants in Texas. And really, go back to the history of our restoration. And you can see that early on, as far back as the 1920s and 30s, that early on those birds were being captured around uh, uh, um, Kennedy County and Coleman County, where we had these big ranches where people really put for you know saw the decline of the birds and made that effort to to sustain what they had left, kind of like the buffalo up in the Panhandle. Yeah, um, you know, there are just a couple of people that could recognize there was an issue and and go through that effort to to protect those birds. And it created that opportunity for our restoration that's uh, been so successful. Hmm. But as far as names, it had to take a little more research. Yeah, no worries. So, I mean, early nationwide conservation efforts, um, people were trapping birds in Texas and then taking them elsewhere? Well, as far as in Texas, most of our birds stayed in Texas. So mm-hmm. the Lacey Act prevents you to move birds across state lines. So early on, restoration efforts it was hard to get birds from one state to re- restore your state as far as like the eastern Turkey and East Texas. Some yeah. of our earliest efforts, we were trading panels back and forth. I can look at some uh, the stuff from the late 1970s, early 1980s, where we were taking pheasants and trading those to Louisiana for some of their turkeys. Wow. So a lot, of the, a lot of that occurred. It was otters and just all these random uh, animals that, that uh, were exchanged. We were trading and otters for turkeys? <laughs> there were, we traded... Uh, we traded deer. We traded otters. We traded uh, we traded pheasants. Just anything we could that that state had an interest in. Uh, it was around the mid 1980s when uh, the National Wild Turkey Federation came along with their Making Tracks program and started operating as a third party to provide us an opportunity to basically you're not buying the birds, but you're reimbursing that state for the resource that they're losing. So they're losing a the bird and also their manpower that goes to trap them. So the National Wild Turkey Federation provided an opportunity for us to to uh, get past the Lacey Act and start bringing birds from other states into Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, for real grand turkeys, we've sent a ton of those out of state. So Utah, um, uh, Nevada, Oregon, Hawaii, um, just about any of those states out west that have Rio grands, the chances are they came from Texas. Uh-huh. And uh, so we, we've uh, done a lot as far as exporting Rio Grands, uh, but the only thing we've imported are eastern turkeys. Right, right. Well, and you know, I was reading just historically about the first like the, the first efforts by and large failed because wildlife agencies were trying to release pin raised birds well you know, those birds are they're not wary they're not equipped with the skill set to survive predators eat them hunters shoot them um so that and that's the same thing like if you were to try to release a bunch of quail on the landscape they're not going to make it either um so that's when i guess the the focus started more towards trapping and I was reading that in like the early 1950s, they these two guys, W. H. Thornsbury and H. H. Dill, uh, came up with a cannon net, which means they could capture a lot more birds at one time. You know, shoot this over a flock and basically capture the entire flock, uh, and then sort through those and and send them out to states like Texas or, uh, and I think that was in, in South Carolina where that started. Um, but you talked about the 70s, 80s. By the like, early 70s, we had 1.3 million birds back on the landscape. So that's a that's quite a, a significant increase from the 30,000 we saw in the 
you know, early 1900s. Absolutely. It's, it, uh, the wild turkey restoration is a great example of a, of a true success story in wildlife management. Um, the work is ongoing. A lot of it today is, is for the real grand turkey, sustaining your historic roost, uh, make sure you're pro- providing some brood cover, and then just hoping Mother Nature uh, works out for you mm-hmm. with timely rainfall and, and, you know, average or below average summer temperatures. That goes a long ways. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, in the management in East Texas, getting fire on the ground and, and timber thinning and, and things of that nature. So we've done a lot of the work as far as the restoration. It's just sustaining those populations today. But uh, I think we're going to have Rio Grande turkeys in Texas for, for a long time to come, long after we're gone. Yeah. Going back to the uh, the Eastern, though, like why – and one thing I didn't mention about why their populations dropped so significantly was it, you have the market hunting and that mindset of kill them all, you know, from the early yeah. Europeans and that went on through into the market hunting, but also wide scale logging, timber cutting. I mean, habitat loss was, was a major part of that for the Eastern birds. Um, yeah. But take us to today and the continuing restocking effort. I mean, I think I just saw a photo last week of some, I think they were South Carolina birds that were heading to Texas. I think it was, yeah, North, North Carolina birds. Oh, North Carolina. Okay, and that was through the partnership with the NWTF. Um, so, mm-hmm. why have the Easterns struggled so mightily to to regain that foothold here in Texas? I mean, we, God knows you guys have been trying like hell for for decades. Yeah, I think you hit it earlier. You know, Texas continued to release pen raised turkeys in East Texas until the late 1970s. It wasn't until in 1979 that we first put some wild-trapped eastern turkeys on the landscape in East Texas. And we've had some success. You look up at North Texas, Northeast Texas, around Red River, Lamar, those counties, and we have a good established population. And down in Southeast Texas, uh, in Nacogdoches, Polk, um, Newton County, Jasper County, we have a good established population there. But it's, it's basically created these islands and a lot of landscape where there aren't birds located. So we had some success early on. But part of it, like I said, we were using pen-raised birds to the late, late 1970s, which is 20 years longer than some states mm-hmm. who walked away from the pen-raised bird program and started using wild trap birds. They had probably 20 years head start on us mm. in some of those areas. And uh, for whatever, we're kind of on that eastern or the western edge of the eastern turkey range. And, you know, where is where do we go from an eastern turkey to a Rio? So that kind of that, that ecotone where, uh, you know, we're one – subspecies would bleed into another you know what where is that line at or does that line shift from from year to year mm-hmm. so i think i think there are a couple of issues that we have to address and we're trying to address those now and uh we're stocking at higher densities uh we're trying to instead of uh going out and find out you know the landowner promises he's going to do this or the landowner promises he'll keep his gate locked or not let his nephew shoot shoot the turkeys rather than depending on just that landowner and the landowner is key it's private property that we're working on for the most part. The landowners keep, but we want to go out there and look at the habitat. Is there good brewing habitat? Is there good visibility underneath that forest understory? Uh, and things of that nature. Trying to make a more of an effort to, to measure brood habitat and usable space compared to what we did historically. Hmm. And instead of putting 15 to 20 birds on the landscape, putting, um, you know, 80 plus birds on the landscape. We know that we're going to expect about 40% mortality annually. If you put a bird out there in January or March, the breeding season is a month or two later. Perhaps we don't get the production in year one, but we still get that 40% mortality. Mm-hmm. By putting that large density of birds on the landscape in that in that very good hab- habitat, 
we know they're going to have a couple of years of that population to stay themselves, get established, begin to produce, and have some successful nesting efforts. And also get you past those weather patterns that you can't predict. You know, is it going to be too wet in East Texas? Are we going to have a drought? You know, whatever might, might occur. Mm-hmm. So I think um, by doing that and also being strategic, identifying a landscape and trying to create, um, like we're doing with the Natchez River Corridor, trying to create a population that's, that's connected from one island population to the next. We can see a genetic exchange, you know, across a 100-mile mm-hmm. landscape. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our, our approach now. So. Being as strategic as we can, trying to have more successes than, than failures, and ultimately create a, a good huntable population across East Texas. Well, and what is the financial commitment um, that you know the state has dumped into this restocking effort, and and who is footing the bill for that? Uh, are, are hunters, you know, through is that is that Pittman Robertson dollars, or is there some other um, entity that is that is funding that uh, that that effort? So it's a partnership between the National Wildlife Federation, especially the state chapter of the National Wildlife Federation, but also the national uh, group out of out of Edgefield, South Carolina, and we're using Upland Game Bird Stamp dollars, so state stamp funds. So if you buy, if you're hunting turkey, quail, any Upland Game Bird in Texas, you're buying your seven dollar endorsement annually. That seven dollar endorsement is what we're using for our restoration efforts for eastern turkeys in Texas. So it's hundred dollars. And that's one of why we're committed to creating a population and creating more hunting opportunities in East Texas. A hundred percent funded by hundred dollars. Love it. I love it. And that's uh and that's why, you know, you look at all of these different species and, and market hunting is is a big part of, of many of them, from the buffalo to the canvas back mm-hmm. to, to the turkey. Um Absolutely. You mentioned Hawaii earlier. I don't. I know that turkeys are now hunted in 49 states. The only one they're not in is Alaska. It's too cold there. How did Hawaii get involved with this? <laughs> I don't think they're native <laughs> to Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii has a long history of introduction of a number of, of species that wouldn't have been endemic. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of those islands are, are not predator-rich. So if you put an, an animal in that landscape with no predators, there's a good chance they're going to become established. Yeah. And there are probably more predators there now, you know, as far as exotics that have moved in with feral dogs and cats and that sort of thing. But there's still uh, lower densities of predators than what you'd ever see on the landscape in Texas. Right. So, uh, yeah, if there's no predators, there's not much to destroy in this, and there's a good opportunity for success there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and yeah, there is there is definitely uh, in, in the mountains and some of that ranch country, there is good, well-established turkey populations. Right on. Well, right on, man. Jason, we certainly appreciate it. Like you said, perhaps the greatest conservation success story uh, of our time. And uh, we certainly enjoy talking turkeys with you. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Gable. Talk to you soon. All right. There he goes. Our longtime friend of the show, Jason Harden of Texas Parks and Wildlife, our turkey program leader, both Easterns and Rios. Uh, always has his finger on the pulse of what's going on there. Actually, he was out in the field today trapping turkeys, so... Uh, he is living it, that is for sure. That segment of the presentation brought to you by a couple Texas traditions. I'm talking about Sendero Seed Company, although you don't have to be in Texas to order their products. They've got everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd, including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forge Oats, Sendero Seed Company for all your planting needs. And then, of course, Rudy's Barbecue as well. After the hunt, there's no better place to stop in and have a heaping plate of barbecue than at Rudy's. They've also got ice-cold Lone Star beer. Check it out. Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. 
Coming up next, we check in with our old pal and world traveler, Corey Knowlton. He just visited his 60th country that he's either hunted or fished in this year. Also had a, uh, a rifle blow up in his face in 2018. How's that recovery process doing? I know it affected his vision there for a little while. We'll also get into governor's tags, the cannibalistic nature of the hunting community, and a bunch more after the break. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Christmas everywhere in what this day means and what we believe from the sandy white beaches where blue water rolls, snow-covered mountains and valleys below. Let it be Christmas everywhere. Let All right, waterfowl junkies, the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose. It's uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck, you throw it in the pile, and 10 minutes later, he's laying there flopping. Uh-uh, we don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle, give it a little twist, boom, dead instantly, never felt the thing. The finisher is only 14 bucks. It fits on any waterfowling lanyard, and you can find it at adrenal-line.com. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. But baby, it's cold outside this evening has been, been hoping that you drop so in I'll hold your hands, they're just like the ice Beautiful, play. what's your heart? Listen to the fireplace so roar really Beautiful, please don't hurt Oh yeah, the wussification of America is alive and well, but not on this show. That is Dean Martin's Baby It's Cold Outside. Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to our presenting sponsors as well, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. I'm Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it very much. Hope that you and yours are having an absolutely phenomenal Christmas season I know we are here at the Smith household. Um, We're all set to, well, gosh, I don't know. We're going to be all over the map because our friend Corey Knowlton, he's been all over the the world map hunting and fishing. And we've got a ton of stuff to get into with Corey. But before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by Horizon Firearms. Y'all have seen my custom 7 mag. It's been all over the world. Well, for me, uh, it's been to Canada, all over the U.S., South Africa, you name it. And I've yet to lose an animal with that rifle. And that is the kind of confidence that I need when I pull the trigger. I know the animal's going down, and it's going down nine times out of ten on the spot. Horizon Firearms will give you that same level of confidence on your custom rifle build, and you can find them at horizonfirearms.com. We'll move in right along here. Let's bring on our next guest. He has been a frequent, somewhat frequent guest over the years, although I can't say he's been on any time recently. But it's certainly my pleasure to welcome renowned big game hunter, world traveler, fly fishing addict, and even former TV show host, Corey Knowlton. Thanks for being here. 
Thanks for having me, man. It is my pleasure. My pleasure. So, well, it's probably been maybe 18 months, maybe two years even since you were last on. Um, I know you've been extremely busy in that time frame, and I always enjoy keeping up with your escapades on your Instagram page. But I, recently, I was looking at a picture that was like of your was of your eyeball, and it, it didn't look very good. <laughs> so. I was going to ask you what happened there. I know it was a hunting-related accident. Um, what happened? What was the recovery like, and, and where are you now? So what had happened was it was on the first day of a, um African safari in Tanzania, uh-huh. in, in the northern part of Tanzania. And uh, I actually had my family with me, and I had a client-slash-friend uh, with me. And uh, we were doing a, a, a leopard hunt, and actually two leopard hunts. And so the first day you get there, and if you go on m- most cat hunts, you have to shoot bait. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife and I and family were cruising around, saw wildebeest out there, and I have a 300 short mag that I hunt with most of the time for plains game deer, whatever. It's kind of my rifle that I use I've had for a long time comfortable with and uh shot the um shot the wildebeest and it dropped we go back to the vehicle get in it and drive over there to where it uh was down at a few hundred yards away and it was alive you know so we walked over there uh, but I grabbed my wife's rifle which was a 375 uh, rifle, a Browning A-bolt, mm-hmm. and just, you know, kind of off-the-shelf rifle that we've had for a long time, and I just grabbed it because I was limited on ammo for the other rifle, and I was going to be in Africa for, you know, around a month. Well, I think they would so, take 60 or is it 80 rounds over there? Well, it just depends. You can you can take, uh, you're really limited more by the weight on the plane, uh-huh. yeah. and so since one of the rifles I brought is a 600 Nitro Express, that ammo ammunition is real heavy. <laughs> right. So I, you know, and I, we were going to hunt buffalo, some other dangerous stuff, and I wanted to. I kind of was had a lot of ammo for the more dangerous stuff, and not as much plains game ammo. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just grabbed the 375, and because I wanted to conserve that ammo, I'm, I'm actually really. I mean, it sounds weird. I'm glad I did because of my wife's rifle. She would have shot it. So I went over there, shot the uh, wildebeest again, and uh, when I shot it, it uh, s- s- some gas from the rifle came back uh, somehow off of that rifle it, straight back into my eye. And I actually have my glasses on. I always shoot with with uh, eye protection and ear protection, if I can, on ears, almost always with eye. But it was kind of low light. It was the end of the day, and I just pulled my glasses up. It shot that gas um, straight back into my eye, wow. and uh, and it just felt like at the time like something flew. It, it almost like it felt like a bug flew in my eye. It, it really didn't hurt that bad. Huh. And uh, but then after a few seconds, it started to get worse and worse. So I grabbed some water, flushed out, and still, you know, didn't. It seemed horrible, and. Uh, got back to camp, rushed back there, and we really started fleshing it out because it, it just felt like something was in it. Yeah. Oh. And uh, and I did. I thought maybe something had flown off, you know, the animal. I was real close to it, you know, doing a 
finishing shot, and I thought, you know, something happened. And uh, but the rifle didn't explode, or it didn't look like any pieces of it had come off. No, 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 no. There wasn't any foreign body or anything in my eye at all. Huh. Well, there I, actually there was. There was a thorn that we had found in there that had been in there for over a year that I didn't know was in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I already had an injury in it, and yeah. then, and 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 so, but I didn't I didn't realize it till they you know did the eye exam. So I fly back to um, back to a little town called Moshi, where there was a, a hospital, and they had a, an eye doctor there from Germany. Hmm. And I flew back there the next the next morning after freaking out all night because I had the subconjunctival hemorrhage, and so the eye was like real bloody. Mm-hmm. And then that's the uh, picture I saw. It was like oh yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, and, and, and it started getting worse and worse. And so I, I flew and had it looked at, and the, the pressure was real high. And uh, it turned out that this what had happened is this wad of gas came maybe out the firing pin hole. I still haven't figured out where. And the the, the kind of uh, consensus is that it was uh, overloaded factory ammunition or something like that. Huh. And it just the gas smashes my eye like a tennis ball, like you had pushed one hand and and, and flattened it. Hmm. So ultimately, it had torn the iris. It. Um, Get, did that subconjunctival hemorrhage, so it's blood all over where the white part of your eye is. It uh, put me in angle closure glaucoma. It gave me what's called a Berlin's edema in front of my retina. God, there's a lot to take in. It was, a, it was a lot going on. And, yeah. and, and, and long story short, within 36 hours of it hitting me there, I was blind. In your right eye? My right eye. Your dominant eye, okay. Wow. Yep. And so... After that, I, I just kept flying. I consulted with doctors back in the United States, consulted with the people at Global Rescue. I was talking to all these people, and they were like, well, they're not going to do anything different than what they're doing there. Uh-huh. So I, I, I basically kept chartering back every few days to town and have them looking at my eye. And, uh, you know, for the next, after about, I don't know, seven days, I could see again out of it, and the pressure was dropping. It got, you know, improved somewhat, and the rest of the time, it hurt like hell, yeah. and it was pretty painful. A lot of the medication they gave me to to um, get the pressure down was horrible, and I, it was just, actually, it was a mess, but I continued to hunt just left-handed. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I'm... I'm- pretty much blind but the hunt must go on so that's right well and you know i had i had uh, let's say you know he'd probably listen to this but i had a very uh unsympathetic uh, client with me basically his he was kind of like you know where you're here you know why go home and yeah you're going to either be hurting here or hurting at home yeah sounds like my my wife that's how she would be yeah, there you go. Yeah. That Shut type up, of attitude. Baby. And, and, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, you don't understand. I'm really, I'm gonna have to have surgery in my foot for this thing called a neuroma coming up, like in a couple of months. I'm trying to stage it between deer season and and spring turkey, um, and it's been bothering me for like four months. And it's just like this nerve damage. There's no, nothing you can do to make it better other than you, you have to get it surgically surgically repaired. And my wife has been very unsympathetic throughout that whole process. So. It's funny how that's uh, not, uh, it goes that way. You know, you can be very sympathetic to them, but it's not always a two-way street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so you you end up staying over there for the for the whole safari. Yeah. It, what 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 happened with the gun? Is it? I mean, is it in the trash heap now or? Um, it's basically in the trash heap now. There was no. I mean, uh, look, I'm not going to go sue anybody over it. Yeah. And 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 I can see now. Um, mm-hmm. I still got. I'll have problems with it probably from what they've told me. I've had 18, a minimum of 18 different doctors look at it in from Tanzania to Zambia to Texas, and um, they all say the same thing that. I likely you just have eye exams forever, and the iris is still torn. I got one pupil that's kind of like oval shaped and looks weird, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it lets light in at an oblique angle, and it's kind of hard to deal with. And, I, and that and where that uh, thorn was at or is at uh, that the eyeball shape was was messed with when that gaff hit it, and it's it's made where that thorn's poking out a little bit, and they don't want to remove that mm-hmm. because they think that uh, you know it could damage my vision. So basically, it's either you live with this thorn in your eye, or you know possibly the chance of losing some more of your vision. Mm-hmm. So I'm living with a thorn in my eye. Oh, it sounds terrible. I mean, jeez. Well, I'm glad that you're doing better. Uh, you can see now. It just seems. Like I can so, see now, not yeah. like I could before, but I can still. I can see. Yeah. Well, I you know, there's worse things, I guess. But I can't think of many. But uh, when I first saw your eye, I was like, I, I don't know if he's gonna, you know, if you'll ever be able to see again. So actually, it's a lot better than I expected to be honest. No, with you. a lot of it's a lot better than what they expected to. A lot of answered prayers, man. It yeah. was an amazing thing to go through and have a lot of uh, um, compassion and empathy for those who can't see because it was a pretty scary horrible thing to live a week of it not being able to see and then for a couple months having horrible vision it was a uh, well and to be in tanzania well i mean we're obviously the the health care is not as good as what you're going to get here yeah, I, mean, you, I was definitely suspect at first but it turned out to be better than what i might have thought and then you know i was there in tanzania for a couple of weeks and then in zambia for a couple of weeks and it got you know, I'm not going to say one country is better than both another, but both the doctors knew what they were talking about and everything they'd said. I sent back to the United States, and you know, with modern technology and having a mm-hmm. Wi-Fi in camp, you can get a lot of answers pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, so have you ever been around? Um, I mean, you've, you've traveled the world, 60 countries now. You've hunted or fished in. Um, have you experienced any other firearm-related malfunction that's Maybe not resulted in injury to you, or maybe it has, but maybe uh, a client or someone else in your hunting party. Oh my gosh, a, a, a firearms malfunction that has. Uh huh. These are just not that common, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know of, of you know I've heard of you know people that were duck hunting or, or deer hunting and get mud in the rifle and the barrels exploding, yeah. uh, stuff like that, or dirt or some object in the barrel and. Um, it exploding, but I haven't heard of anybody necessarily really getting hurt from it. You know, I've never I, heard I've of definitely ga- heard of getting related. hurt from not being able to operate operate it. You know, operator error, yeah. but not the firearms itself. It was a real odd thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I've and I've heard. You know, I actually know a guy whose rifle, or uh, excuse me, shotgun got he got mudded in it, and then it did explode in his hand. It was okay. It scared the crap out of him. Um, but I've never heard of gas coming back into anyone's face ever. I. I I can't say that I've ever heard of that. 
Well, and that's the only thing that can explain what happened without being a, a foreign body, and there's something hit it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what the people that I've talked to and gunsmiths that I've talked to, and I mean, if there's somebody out there has an awesome explanation, better than what I, you know, I'm not a firearms expert by any means. I'd like to hear people's opinions of what they think could have happened, you know, put yeah. some comments on your Instagram. <laughs> right. You well, know, cool. experts out there. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's take a break. We're obviously glad that your vision is back. You need that to... Uh keep traveling the world hunting obviously let's take a break and then talk about some of those escapades like we said 60 countries you visited you know as a hunter as a guide in a lot of cases as well uh, but let's do that and, and come right back sound good okay perfect excellent and that segment brought to you by all seasons feeders and blinds in addition to their incredible lineup of blinds and feeders all seasons has a bunch of other products that are designed to help you bring home the bacon like the little squealer hog light so if you've got pigs that are hitting a feeder after dark you set up the little squealer at that site and boom motion detection illuminates those hogs with an iridescent green light and here's the best part it's only 59 bucks that's it 59 dollars, and you are now hog hunting after dark it's a little squealer you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com we'll be right back with more from our good friend Corey mason what in the world are governor tags? We discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. I am a poor boy to call up a bumpo. I have no gift to bring for up a bumpo. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Have you been looking for new and innovative products in the shooting industry? Then check out IOTA. Their scope rings and stocks are second to none, especially with their patented zero light and key lock technology. Based right here in Texas, check them out at iotaoutdoors.com or call 979-229-4664. IOTA Outdoors, inspiring innovation for hunting and shooting. Hey, this is Captain Len, Gulf Coast Corpus Christi, wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. That is Sarah Hobbs featuring Sam Riggs, Point of No Return. Thank you guys and gals for being here today. I certainly appreciate each and every one of you, and I sincerely do mean that from the bottom of my heart. Here we are, almost 10 years into this thing, uh, back before podcasts even existed. Back then, it was just a, a little old radio show you could find somewhere on that FM dial, <laughs> but... Uh, in the world we live in today, anybody can tune in anytime, anywhere. And that, my friends, is a good thing. Well, moving right along here, we're all set to pick it back up with renowned big game hunter, world traveler, outfitter, and our good friend Corey Knowlton. But first, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by First Light. 
If you haven't seen the First Light Sanctuary bibs, you need to do yourself a favor, especially if you hunt in extreme cold weather. Uh, for instance, on that Illinois whitetail hunt a couple weeks ago, it was downright nasty cold. Let me tell you, temps in the teens, wind howling, and it was the Sanctuary bibs that kept me warm and toasty. You can find it along with First Light's entire lineup right there at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. Let's jump back into it here with Corey Knowlton. Uh, Corey, certainly appreciate you sticking around through the break. No problem. So you hunt everything from here in North Texas, uh, whitetail to, and you're from this area, um, to, I mean, you've hunted, I don't know, probably all the sheep. You've hunted all over Africa. I'm, I'm quite envious, to be honest with you. But 60 countries is a lot of <laughs> that's a lot well, of that's countries. how many I've visited. I haven't, I've, I've probably hunted and fished only, you know, maybe... I don't know, 50 maybe, uh-huh. you know, but or maybe more. I haven't actually counted that. But I, the other day I was like, I was going through and I said, man, I need to think about how many places I've actually been, you know, countries I've been to. And this isn't counting ones, you know, you stop at the airport, like actually been to and been around yeah. and and uh, got to, it was 60 the other day. I was like, wow, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty uh, well-marked-up passport, no doubt about that. Um, so out of those countries, I mean, which one is the most, uh, the dark, which one's been the scariest for you personally? Oh, um, I think 635 and 75 in Texas. <laughs> I would say it's the, the scariest on a daily basis, you know. I, I, every day I, I get scared to death over there. Hmm. Um, but, no, I mean, as far as when you say scary in what way? I mean, like where you, you're, I don't know if it's because of they don't like Americans. Uh, there's terroristic threats, or uh, just where you felt uneasy due to maybe civil unrest or social climate that just... I really haven't run into so much, you know, and you, I guess you hear about a lot. I haven't run into a lot of people that, even in even in Pakistan or uh, a lot of the Asian countries I've been to, and, and I've never really run into people that I just felt didn't like them, you know, was going to be rude to you or... Mm-hmm you know, wanted to harm you because you were American, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I haven't really, I haven't really run into too much of that. Now, have I, have I run into some people that didn't like the government we had at that time? Yeah, but about American citizens, I think, I think most of the world probably. They want our money, right? Not. Yeah, I mean, I think they're yeah. pretty comfortable with us. Yeah, okay, right on. Um, okay, well, shifting gears a little bit, back, let's come back home to the U.S. and, and talk about governor's tags. This is something I, I bet half of our listeners don't even know these exist, um, and they're they're very very expensive. I mean, you have to be um, wealthy to acquire one, but it's still fascinating. The rest of us can dream about them. Uh, so I do want to talk about those because essentially, this is a tag where say, and you can explain it better. But there might be is there one for mule deer, one for elk? You know, say like in New Mexico or Arizona. Is there one for each species, and, and then you basically have an open sea, uh, season, and you can hunt the animal whenever, wherever? Well, it varies from state to state, and there's uh, honestly, there's a few different levels of them. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Utah, they have a lot of unit-specific tags. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just say there's a really good um, deer unit or elk unit. They do it on both, and they do it in, you know, for they do it for mule deer, elk, uh, antelope, um, sheep. Yeah, sheep, all those animals, even even bear. You know, they'll they'll auction off these tags. It's 
to where you bypass the uh, draw system for that and, and go right to it. And a lot of those, honestly, they're not, you know, some of them are kind of high and some of them get really high, but a lot of the others, you know, they're not, uh, you could, there's some of them that are less than $10,000, you know, a lot of them, and, and they're really good hunts. And I, that, I'm not saying that's not a lot of money, but comparative to what, like, the statewide uh, Arizona mule deer tag goes for, you know, a lot of times, you know, I had a guy I know spent $400,000 on it one time. Wow. So, you know, that, that, I mean, it's an extreme case, but the the sheep tag in, in uh, Montana, their their governor's tag, it, uh, you know, went for, it's always around $300,000. Yeah. And 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 the the t- areas you can hunt and the t- seasons you can hunt vary. I'd say the the most beneficial, the the m- most bang for your buck is in Arizona if you're talking about period time because you get to hunt from August 15th all the way to August 14th of the following year. So you get 365 days hmm. on whichever one you bought. If you bought the deer tag, if you bought the elk tag, if you bought whatever you can you can hunt it that whole time if you buy the sheep tag for instance in montana you get to hunt just the same seasons that the guy who drew it gets to hunt you don't have anything more or less than than what he's got mm-hmm. you but you can hunt in any tag. unit right right which is the hardest but with the sheep i mean that's that's i'll keep putting in hopefully one day i'm going to draw one you know or by the time if I'm you keep doing it, you know, 60, you're, you're, if my knees are still good, maybe I'll, you know, have enough points in one of those states. It just, I think it depends how lucky you are. How lucky do you feel? Yeah. You feel lucky, Cable. I, I've been doing, I've been drawing pretty, pretty regularly in New Mexico, so I, I usually have good luck. Um, but we shall see. Who knows? Yeah, and, and so a lot of those, the, the interesting thing about those governor's tags is, I think the the biggest benefit is in most states they use it to supplement things that they're not able to do through normal um, normal wildlife funding to their government, and most of that most of that uh, money is ear tagged for or earmarked for a certain project. Is it wa- one year in Arizona it was water, you know, another it may be counting aerial surveys, and so they're very very beneficial to the governments. You know, here in, in, in Texas, or we have we have one there that you do at Elephant Mountain for the desert bighorn sheep. Yeah. And so that, that's a, a program that needs all the help that it can get. And there's just not a big, you know, a big. Is that uh, is that actually governor's tag, or is that just auctioned off every year? Which I guess is well, the same I mean, thing, it, w- really. it would be the it would be the it, it would be the equivalent of it for our state because that's the the public land. Yeah. See, even in these other states, it doesn't allow you if you buy a governor's tag, it doesn't give you permission to go on someone's private land and shoot a deer in their yard. Right. Right. So so that those public places they usually do it at Elephant because the best place, but you could conceivably hunt at Sierra Diablo or black gap if i'm not wrong mistaken okay and so on the lower end maybe 10 grand on the higher end you like you said all the way up to you know could be four hundred thousand dollars who's buying it and how much they've drank that night yeah (laughs) Yeah. there's no doubt about funny as it sounds i mean there's just people out there and I'm, i'm really glad for it that there's people out there that are willing to spend a lot of money uh and my, I guess my, the thing I'm most proud of is that, as of, of hunters, are there's people who are that passionate, who've been successful in life, who are willing to sacrifice uh, the money for the opportunity to go hunting. I think it, it speaks a lot for who hunters are, and there's a lot of people who that would be their dream in life. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a mule deer hunter or whatever, to have the opportunity to to hunt the biggest animal that you can find in any given state. 
yeah. and and at the same time benefit the wildlife. I think that one of the pinnacles of sustainable use there. Well, and, and Corey, I mean, you're no stranger to this. Obviously, uh, you've, you've done very well. Your family has done very well. And going back a few years, and this is obviously very well documented with the black rhino hunt, uh, that you bought at the Dallas Safari Club live auction, and you had planned—I mean, you had, you had planned on purchasing that hunt. It went for three hundred fifty thousand dollars, all of which went back to conservation. And I think you actually got it for cheaper than what you thought it was going to go for, due to all of the well, anti-hunters' yeah, hate. I had no idea what I was getting into. I just you know, a friend of mine, uh, John Jackson at Conservation Force, came to me and said he was worried that all of the um, circus around it of anti-hunting people mm-hmm. protesting and complaining about it was chasing off a lot of the money which it did i spoke to a lot of people well i shouldn't say a lot a handful of people who were much wealthier than i and were willing to spend a lot more money on it than i was and they they owned real big companies and had a lot of employees and honestly i was naive about it i had no idea where it was going to end up taking me and all the hell that i was going to go through and yeah. put my family through and my friends and so on and so forth over it but it ended up working out really well learned a whole lot yet? about sustainable use and conservation and the black rhino because of it well and, and I, yeah i was going to ask you if, if you could do it over again would you take the same path i mean uh, yes yeah i would I'll tell you, if you're going to stand up, and it's an interesting, I guess, uh, point of view that I've got in it from hunting, and I don't, uh, I, I really, um, I didn't think I w- this was, I guess this is a ancillary benefit or a, or a side benefit of doing it, is that I uh, I went into it knowing what I was going to, knowing that it was going to be good for conservation. I came out of it with a viewpoint of basically when you stand up for something, I mean, I could have just shut up and not, and not said anything and not kind of fight it the way I did, but I, I, I kind of chose to go ahead and fight it. And yeah, I mean, you came on our show and did other interviews. I mean, Oh man, lots. Yeah. And I chose, I chose to fight it. And I would say if you're going to stand up for something, it's, it's a good thing, and I would encourage people to do it. But don't think that you're going to be able to do it without a cost. Mm-hmm. You know, those people who don't believe what you believe, they're they're just as passionate as you are a lot of times, and they're willing to do a lot of things to make it uncomfortable for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I, it's got to be somewhere on the internet. But CNN did a great job. They actually, I mean, for them to come and cover the hunt, um, and we did a a post hunt recap of that. But uh, I really thought they did a a pretty unbiased job portraying uh, trophy hunting and and that was kind of surprising um to be honest with you from my standpoint coming from that network uh, i thought they did a great job you know what i learned a lot about about that network is not necessarily it's it's like it's a big company like every everything else and it's a huge multi-headed beast and all of those networks are but not everybody within that has that uh that mindset Actually, I thought the guys that went with me, uh, there might have been one in the group that was more conservative. There's definitely one in the group that was more liberal. But frankly, they just liked the news aspect of it, and that's what they wanted to get into. They didn't really care so much about the politics of it, and that's why ultimately, you know, I chose them to go along with me on the hunt. Mm-hmm. When I when I when I sat down with them, they were very very. We're just in it for the you know just the facts, and we're going to show it for that and. 
you know, you're the you're when we go along with you, we're telling your side of the story, and we're just going to film you and you can talk about it, and you know, yeah. we're going to ask you questions, you answer them. Yeah. And that, and was, it was it was real refreshing, honestly. Uh, I think that it actually upset some of the antis. Uh, they thought it was a one-sided way towards the hunting, and honestly, it was just telling what happened. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there were quite a few of them that were ticked off that it didn't just, you know, throw us under the bus. <laughs> I'm sure that they thought it would. Um, no, I think you're right. And the same thing with that Radio Lab podcast that was done and Radio Lab on NPR. Uh-huh. Man, I encourage anybody to li- everybody to listen to that because they were, you know, I got to debate people on the other side then and they listened to listened to it and um they, I think they did really fair. There was a lot of them that were fair. There was plenty that were unfair. Oh, but, yeah, but you know, there was a lot of people that. I, I think one of the interesting things, Cable, about speaking to uh, non-hunters or anti-hunters is if you ask them basic questions, that they're they're aligned with us. They just don't, they're not aware. They have too many preconceived notions. I mean, if you just ask them, so do you do you want to limit or end animal suffering? They're going to say yes. Yeah. Do you think anti-poaching costs money? Yes. They're going to they're going to they're going to agree with you. They can't they, unless they're just totally living in a dream world, which a lot of them are. But when you ask them basic questions like that, do you prefer um, more animals than fewer animals? Right. Are healthy right. animals preferable to unhealthy animals? You know, ask them if ask them when you talk to them. Have you ever seen an animal die? from disease or starvation or being, you know, taken down by another animal. It's not pretty. Oh, no. And, I mean, would you rather have your ass eaten out alive by a, a hyena or a lion? Or would you, I would rather a hunter shoot me in the head or heart or wherever. I don't care. Getting eaten alive about is not. fire ants. Yeah, oh, my God. It's just it's not even. Okay, how many animals die from fire ants? It's, yeah, it's not you even think debatable. of a worse way to go. Shoot me now. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you'll find if you ask them questions like that, They'll, their 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 interests are oftentimes aligned with ours. Their emotion isn't. And if you ask them just questions, how do you feel? Do you do you believe poaching should be stopped? I do. Do you? It's a lot of the things. There's a lot of common ground there. But I think the preconceived notions and they grow up with the anthropomorphication of animals. You know, ban- we talk about the same things all the time. But you know, Bambi isn't real. You know, and, Disney and, Lion and, King. And, and, Lion yeah. King, I think, is one of the worst ones. Oh, it's the worst. To yeah. Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're not. You know, they don't have that. And if you look at the real way a lion dies, it's horrible. Oh yeah. It, they go down one of the ugliest deaths of of anything. And I, I just feel like if you ask them that, I mean, they they agree with us on a lot of things. It's just uh, we. I think we need to not talk about the differences we have as much as talk about the um, the things we have in common. Because frankly, I think due to the way the world is today, that we're losing that battle. I think it's something as hunters we could do a lot better with. We, we're not very good salesmen oftentimes. No, I, I think DSC is doing a good job of, you know, pushing that envelope um, with some of the more provocative propaganda, which I don't think is in – it's not designed to um, to get a reaction from an anti-hunter that's one of, like, hate. I think it's more educational for someone that's on the fence that doesn't know uh, about Sustainable use hunting, or even trophy hunting, that you know, if it, just well, go back to the term. yeah, I mean, trophy hunting is the most sustainable of all hunting. Yeah, if it pays, it stays. Most that simple. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would just encourage, I'd encourage your listeners to the people that they talk to that are um, 
either anti-hunters or non-hunters, just to ask them basic questions like that and find out where where your beliefs are aligned, you know. Yeah. And 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 then they'll they'll come to it with their answers. Mm-hmm. Well, before we move on, because uh, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about those governor's tags. Just going back to that for a minute. Sure. Why in these areas where the people target, you know, say I go to uh, I buy a the mule deer tag in Arizona. And my, I mean, I'm probably going to shoot a 220 inch mule deer at a minimum. What areas are those? Because you said you told me this off the air, and and it's I think it goes, you know, it doesn't have to be a 220 inch mule deer. It could be 160 class mule deer. I drew the tag, and that would tickle me to death all day, you know. But these bigger Mm -hmm. animals tend to congregate in certain areas, and I'm going to let you talk about that because I know you've got a lot of experience uh, western big game hunting. Okay, so I mean, I've got you know, some opinions on it, and then there's some facts about it. I mean, if you look where most of the time for for elk, where a lot of times in Arizona, if you want to go to Arizona, the bigger bulls are taken are oftentimes near um, Indian reservations or, or national parks, mm-hmm. and, you know, near the boundaries of those coming and going off of them. And I think that I think that has to do with a little bit of the nature of hunting itself, where there's pressure and not as much pressure. But I also think that in in uh, for Indian reservation, for instance, you know, they go off of uh, different um, management practices than the states do. The states, in general, are about hunter opportunity, yeah. and they are about getting as many hunters in the field that that can go side by side and are parallel with their management objectives. Um, when you go to uh, Indian reservation or, or private land or whatever, they may they may be managing it just for trophies, and so they're that's where it's not so much about hunter opportunity; it's about getting the most per animal, and we're going to get more if we're able to, you know, create a an older age class of trophy animals that exist. Hundred percent. And so I think that a lot of times in certain areas you end up on those governor tags, you end up hunting. It's not all of them. But I think it's it's true with elk. Oftentimes, that they're they're near Indian reservation, they're near a national park or a state park where there's where there's not hunting in it. I think it's just the the nature of it. You you find out. I mean, I've been on those hunts and we've been close to those areas numerous times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the point was um, because let's face it, I can't afford it. Ninety nine percent of our listeners can't afford it to buy that governor's tag. But hell, we can all put in for a unit that backs up to an Indian reservation. And it's the you know it transcends the governor's tag. It's it's the same concept of they're managing for bigger animals. They might be coming off of that reservation, and you might you know have your chance at a once in a lifetime bull or buck or you know ram whatever. And the other thing you know the other thing that I think is interesting with most of these places that have governor's tags is they have state lotteries, and you can go in and buy a lottery tag, and you you know the, the they'll have the lottery tag guy hunting. A lot of times the outfitters whoever are guiding those guys. They'll be guiding a lottery tag guy oftentimes for a far uh, less amount of money because the money they're getting from the governor's tag guy helps supplement it. Uh-huh. Those lottery guys take uh, amazing animals year in and year out. And, you know, it's a guy who spent anywhere from whatever, 5 to to $100 on a lottery tag. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in yeah. Texas, we're not known for our, our, you know, illustrious draw system, but we do have the big-time Texas hunts where you get a – a, a desert bighorn, a pronghorn, a muley, and a whitetail, and I think those tag—I think that's like ten bucks to apply for that, and you get all there. Four. You go, and you're guided by uh, professional guides. And I think uh, and also Texas Parks and Wildlife um, officials are there the entire time. So, 
It's, uh, no, you know, and, and the, the the guys they have guiding the sheep in Texas are amazing. I'm just, I, I think it's a sheep program leader. I mean, that's how hands-on it is. Yeah, Corlon Hernandez, Dewey, yep. those guys yep. are the ones that go. Yeah, so that's pretty. That's a great opportunity. Um, let's let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to come back, uh, hit on kind of something, and it's something that irks me to this day. It irked me nine years ago. It still ticks me off when I see it today, and that's the hunting community cannibalizing itself, um, and, and that's just something I, I hate seeing. So I know you're passionate about that as well. So let's take a break, come back, and get into that. You got it. Perfect. And that segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. If you're looking to finance your own slice of paradise for you know hunting, recreating, fishing, running cows, or you just want to get the hell out of the big city for the weekend, Lone Star Ag Credit has been doing this for over 100 years. They'll help you finance that slice of paradise, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from our good friend Corey Nolte on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I've fallen down in Houston from a cowboy friend of mine. He said he'd named him Rio, got him on the borderline. He's red just like the river, and he runs his free and wild. A good horse don't get no better, he can weather every mile. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800 9 Go hunt or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Christmas in Texas, it'll be about 103. Christmas in Texas, watching the snow falling on TV. Christmas in Texas, I better grab another bag of ice. Christmas in Texas, cause warm on star beer ain't nice. Christmas in Texas. That's John Evans bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you for tuning in as we are rocking and rolling, visiting with our good friend and renowned big game hunter, world traveler, and conservationist, Corey Knowlton. Before we jump back into it with Corey, however... This segment of the presentation brought to you by John X Safaris. I'm heading there June 7th through the 15th for the third annual Lone Star Outdoor Show trip. I think we've got five guys already signed up. We've got a great group going. We've got room for either two or three more if you want to be a part of that. And it truly is the experience of a lifetime. It's more than a hunt uh, from the culture of the people 
to the just the sheer beauty of South Africa. Um, and of course, the hunting is incredible as well. But shoot me an email, Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. I'll send you over the necessary information. Love to have you be a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show trip to South Africa with John X Safaris. All right, we're picking it back up here with Corey. Uh, certainly appreciate you sticking around through the break, man, and I'm definitely enjoying today's conversation. Thank you, man. I'm enjoying it as well. So one thing I know that we we talked about this off the air earlier this week and something that we're both, I don't know, it's sad to see this. And, um, and, and I'm going to give you an example as we kind of get into it here. I was in Illinois uh, about 10 days ago at a, for a, a muzzleloader hunt in Pike County, the land of giants. And, uh, and I didn't shoot a giant. I shot a nice 250-pound eight-point, um, which I was very happy with. Congratulations. Well, thank you. On your Instagram. <laughs> thank you very much. Shot this nice you buck. actually go hunting to not take selfies. You actually go out there to take something. <laughs> yeah. You're actually actually hunting. <laughs> yeah. I'm the guy that goes out and takes selfies. No, that is not true. Uh, anyway. But, uh, but, but so that's I'm, part of what we're talking about. Here I am judging the selfie guy. Yeah. Hey, uh, bought a hunting license. Here I am in a tree stand. Here's my picture yeah, exactly. of me. I mean, I mean, I'm Proving. judging the guy. He's out hunting. Well, I don't care. I, mean, I shouldn't care what he's out there. But it's part of who we are as hunters is the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm guilty. You know. Yeah. Well, so I'm sitting there, and I'm in a, I'm in a box blind overlooking a cornfield, which had been, by and large, ninety percent of it had been plowed by the farmer. And then the, the, the whitetail outfitter leases it from the farmer, and he leases out X number, or just buys. X number of, if it's acres or bushels of corn, I don't know. But let's just say there was 10 acres of corn. And then with every hunt, they go in there because they'll have, you know, staggered a three-day hunt, a four-day hunt, a three-day hunt. But they only have 10 days of, of gun season total in Illinois. But they'll go in there and they'll manipulate those, those standing corn. They'll, they'll brush hog it. And that's essentially making like a, a three-acre feeder is all it was doing because these deer just come out of the woodwork and are just feeding in that corn, just like if you had a feeder in North Texas or the South Texas brush country or wherever, um, they're congregating there. And I'm like, you know what? These guys that judge Southerners for hunting over feeders, I was like, this is the same damn thing. It's just a bigger feeder. Were, were they judging? That were the same guys you're hunting with talking about it and saying or and giving you crap about being in Texas? And no, no, no. Deer the, feeder? The, the, the outfitters weren't. No, but you know there were guys from Delaware, from Pennsylvania, from New Jersey. There were people from Georgia. I mean, there was people from all over. Uh, let's just say the eastern United States um, at, at this camp. And, you know, for, for most of them, a, a feeder is a foreign thing, but hunting over purposely manipulated agriculture for the purpose of drawing deer in was just like a normal thing that wasn't was, was so, so much different than a feeder when it was couldn't have been more similar. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to the, the point, that's a problem within the hunting community. Who I, I don't care. Um, I wanted to experience it for myself because I had this suspicion that I, I thought it was going to be like it was, and it turned out to be true. Um, but I don't care how other people hunt. If they're doing it legally uh, and ethically, I, it doesn't matter to me. That's the, And I know it doesn't matter to you either. It doesn't matter to me. So, yeah. I, it, But it's a serious problem. I mean, we literally, uh, who was it that you were telling me said I don't have I think it was the HSUS director said I don't have, I'm never going to get hunting shut down because uh, I don't need to you guys are going to do it yourselves that's correct yeah he said that when the to a friend of mine and um he I mean I, I frankly he's right you I think if you look at us through the eyes of the enemies of hunting and uh, conservation and sustainable use 
uh, I think one of the things you would see is that the hunting group isn't they're frankly they're not very united oftentimes on and uh, you were you were touching on it uh you know in a conversation that you and I had had about um oh just earlier today and I think that um hunters I think they that it's if you look at the gun lobby or you look at the gun man there's there everybody's behind the second amendment mm-hmm. and when I, you were talking about how People are brought up, they're brought up hunting a certain way, and um, they're brought up that way, and they think that's the way it is. And, and I understand that, and they have the right to think that. I mean, I'm not going to say that they don't have the right to think or say whatever they want about it, um, but when you are attacking somebody else's way of hunting, when it's a legal method of take, it's a legal way of doing it, it's perfectly legal, and um, and you're imposing your ethics or situational ethics uh, upon them and they're doing it differently than than you are um you're really a, the person you're it's like you're 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 digging a hole for yourself mm-hmm. and yeah. and there's no matter how any of us hunt you could say well you know I'm a rifle hunter I'm a bow hunter I I, I think I was a rifle hunter I think bows unethical as I the bow hunter I think I'm better than a rifle hunter it's how about just be happy the other guys going hunting I mean, there's so few of us compare, if we were talking about earlier, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people hunting, but if you look at the numbers, there's less and less people hunting. I mean, uh, if it keeps on the trajectory it is, there's going to be none eventually, or a very, very low number. So I think we need to be looking out for each other, not not chopping each other down. If four, I think it's like four or 5% of the population today hunts, which is, I mean, it's just sad. Uh, There's no other way to describe it that people have become so detached from the reality of where food comes from. Um, but, you know, I think it goes back to what you said. Uh, where you were born is what shapes your mindset on what's okay, what's not okay. And you see the Midwestern guys that are, you know, like I said, they hunt these fields, uh, ag fields, manipulated fields all day long. And then you have the Western guys who think public land is the only way to go. Uh, and then, you, and then you have guys in Texas who, Hey, you know, if you want to hunt a high fence, doesn't matter to me any, I don't care. And, and I always give this one example when it comes to that, the high fence deal. And I've, through this job, been able to go on, on hunts all over the place that I never would have been able to do otherwise. Some of those have been on high fence ranches and I don't hide behind it. I don't really care. Um, but I'll go to these places and, and Corey, there'll be a guy there who is, has a successful career, but he is a slave to his job. He also has a family, and his kids are involved with sports. And he gets maybe one or two weekends a year to go hunting, and he can afford to do it. And so he chooses to go to High Fence Ranch and shoot a nice buck, take the meat home with him, and you know what? More power to that guy. I don't judge that guy. I don't care. I'm happy that he bought a hunting license. And I think so many people are like, you know, I mean, and obviously we've discussed, your family's been very successful. I think a lot of people get jealous of that fact, and that's why they frown on it, which to me it's just like, hey, the guy's hunting license oh, costs yeah, the same whether he's a millionaire or whether he's, you know, a blue collar guy. Yeah, I think jealous. I think you're getting to the root of it. Jealousy is a big issue, and you know, look, is if you if you are um, hunting here in North Texas somewhere and you have a small lease and you're hunting a deer, uh, all, you know, you got a picture of a deer on your camera and you kill that deer with a recurve bow, 
It, yes, that's an accomplishment. Is that accomplishment, you know, for what you and I probably have similar views, a greater accomplishment than some guy who, you know, goes and, and shoots a high fence buck? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, to it you is. it is, but yeah. to him, it doesn't matter. He got that's what he went for. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's a personal thing. I think hunting is a very personal thing. I, and I'll, t- I'll tell you, the, the, the biggest, the scariest thing to me right now in this fight is the meat hunting, eat what you kill movement there. It's it's very, um, I, 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 I see it a lot, and I, and I agree with the vast majority of what they say. And I understand why they're going hunting, but you hear a lot of those guys judging the the trophy hunting aspects of it. Not all of them, but I, but I hear it often. I think, it, 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 frankly, it's somewhat scary. I think it's almost like a a cop out. It, it, hunting's justifiable if you're going to eat it, but it's but it's not justifiable if it's not for that. And I think hunting's justifiable if it continues the wildlife being sustainable or increasing population. And it's a, it's there's at the very that's frankly that's more important than than the um the meat or that you may eat for it or not it's hard to eat something that that is extinct right yeah yeah it, it i mean you see my instagram i like to cook all kinds of weird stuff from the animals i hunt but uh i'm not going to i'm not going to sit here on the show and tell you that i eat every hog that i shoot i mean that's that just wouldn't be true and i don't think you should have to uh some animals they're you know we can't eat everyone we shoot. I'm not going to eat a coyote. Coyote's going to kill my deer. I, no, I mean, for instance, like brown bear. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to go out. I shouldn't say nobody, but the vast majority of people aren't going to go out and eat a coastal brown bear. Yeah. And the, the, here, here's here's what I tell you, the, the, the da- dangers of it. Look, there's plenty of brown bears. And if we said, hey, you have to pack out that 1,300-pound brown bear meat, you're forcing them to take it when it's, well, you know, I mean, it could be argued on inedible. I mean, it's not something that, you know, they eat rotten, nasty stuff a lot of times. It's the same thing with a lion. You know, I, I don't know anybody that eats lion. Oh, like you're African you're talking lion. to somebody who ate it last week. African lion. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, African lion. Uh, no, no, mountain lion's a total different deal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it tastes like pork, but they eat, they, they kill something, they eat it. You know, African lion that's just been eating nasty, rancid stuff that's sitting around for, two weeks yeah same thing brown bears whatever Mm -hmm. if you if you if you if you attack that brown bear hunting on that and you make it onerous on the hunter to take the meat out man you're gonna have less people brown bear hunting yeah i I just think people need to think to the end of it either you're pro what we're doing or you're against it yeah i mean i mean in 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 that sense you i mean i'm not saying you got to accept or agree with everybody but at the end of the day, I mean, if a guy's hunting and he agrees with you, like I was telling you, he agrees with you eight out of ten things, seven out of ten things, it's your friend. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't let your disagreements uh, destroy the relationship or destroy what we all believe in. Yeah. I mean, people that listen to the show, even some of my like lifelong friends were like, how can you back Ted Cruz? And I'm like, well, it's real easy. Ted Cruz supports the Second Amendment, and I agree with 70% of what Ted Cruz says. And they're like, well, what about the public lands? And they, you know, and you know that I love public lands. And the highlight of my year every year is going into the mountains with a bow on public land and trying to kill an elk. It really is. Sure. So we'll fi- we'll fight for public lands. We will. I I will. You know, be there on the front lines. But uh, the Second Amendment. I mean, there, there's just no there's no give on that. I want the kumbaya hunter moment. You know. Yeah. I, 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 I guess I'm living in a utopian dream here. You know, we want the guy that's taking the selfies that never kills crap. We want uh, 
We yeah. love you, dude. Yeah, we love you, and we love the uh, the Western guy who who thinks public land is the only way to do it. I we love, love the, you. The businessman who flies in and shoots a 200 inch deer, and that makes him happy. He gets to hunt once a year. Love that guy too. And we love the outfitters. Yeah. We love the guys who do it themselves. We love you all. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, ever individually, we can we can get past it. Just if you catch yourself doing it, you know, you got two ears and one mouth. Use the two ears and listen. And you know, and then and then try to say something nice that helps the situation. If you don't agree with, yeah. it, obviously, obviously, I mean, we're not gonna sit here. I'm not. We, we, you and I swim in the same pool that everybody else does. We're not gonna say that we don't have. You know, there's things about us that we we may not like about some ways somebody else hunts, mm-hmm. or we may not think it. You know, it's as uh, altruistic or whatever we like to think about uh, the, the way hunting should be done, but. At the end of the day, I think uh, you know if it's legal, you accept it, and if you you have diff- if you have some differences, just talk about it and be willing in an accepting way. Just don't say you know judge them and end it. Uh, and I'll give you thermal imaging as a prime example. There's people uh, I'll post a video of of killing hogs or coyotes using thermal. It's a valuable tool. I absolutely love it. And there's people who are like, oh, I don't. I would only hunt them during the daylight, like a real man. And I'm like. <laughs> Well, you you don't even have to call it hunting. I call it more, you know. Uh, or you're killing stuff. Yeah, and it's it's a means to an end. There's too many of them. We have a problem. This is how we deal with it. So I just uh, yeah. Well, I mean, not everything, uh, you know, unfortunately, isn't related to manhood. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, my friend, it's it's been enjoyable as always. It's been too long. Uh, we need to do this again very soon. And and I'd like to hear about some of your fly fishing adventures uh, from bonefish in the caribbean somewhere to i don't know what the hell you were catching oh, yeah last one was in kiribati next one is in sudan at yeah the wild places sudan. you get all into it what, you know like like we we're saying hunting's going down fishing license sales are going through the roof yeah it's crazy and why yeah yeah and i can't get a and i can't get a dime out of the fishing industry you know i don't know how I, you know i maybe it's because like if you're not I'm, any good at fishing that is not true. In the mirror, you know? I mean, I saw that 10-pound bass you caught. Obviously, it worked out one day. One hit wonder. One hit wonder. It was wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations on that, too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think maybe they think, uh, well, if we advertise, we got to sell 1,000 lures to get our money back. But if if a rifle company does, and they're like, well, we got to sell two guns, you know, maybe that. I don't know what it is, but. I, I pledge right now to all the fishing, um, the, 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 the people who have a fishing product out there, that if it's put on cable show, I'll buy it. <laughs> That's what we need. We need everyone to say that. I, I promise I'll buy it. Yeah, I don't well. care how stupid it is. Ranger boats, come on down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I can't say I'll buy that, but if it's something you know affordable for, uh, I'll, I'll get it. I'm not going to go buy the the eighty thousand dollar cable Smith. Uh, signature series Ranger. <laughs> I can't promise that. I'm not saying I won't, yeah. but I can't promise it. I caught that bass in a little pond here in McKinney, so even the blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. Good for but, you, uh, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you probably didn't hear the story. So I caught that fish, and I thought it was a catfish I hooked into. Way it started ripping drag. I saw it jump, and I was like, starting to understand why you don't have any fishing sponsors. Holy moly! Yeah, it's all jump, and I was like, "Please God, let this happen for me." Knowing my dad's biggest bass was eight pounds nine ounces, and that that one was significantly bigger just from eyeballing it one time. It jumped three times. There's no competition between you and him. It doesn't sound like. Oh, I haven't been fishing since I've won, so 
you know? <laughs> yeah, until he, until he beats you, you're the winner. <laughs> I just haven't been that mad at him since, yeah. You know, what they say is when the son beats the father, they both win. Yeah, I, you know what? But I just don't see that yet with my son. He's about to be six, and I try to stomp him every time we do anything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, I might have let him win once, one time. But uh, I didn't have a scale in my backpack that worked. The batteries were all corroded because I hadn't caught a fish worth weighing in probably a couple of years. And so I had to drive to uh, Cabela's to buy a, I had to tie that fish up, drive to Cabela's, and I'm sure the bass purists are out there just cringing right now talking about tying up a 10-pound bass. You could have ate it. Yeah, I could have done that. <laughs> but uh, catch. Flew, through, flew up there to Cabela's, and I basically told all the people online, hey, can, can I cut in front of you all because i got a 10-pound bass, I think, on you know tied up. They're like, oh, yeah, let this guy go, let this guy go. Yeah, got back. Yeah, there. they were. Yeah, those were probably the fishing purists you're talking about. Hurry up and get it. Let it go. Yeah, don't eat it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. What did it finally weigh? How big was it? Uh, it was I think it was ten to seven is what it was. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, right there in your, they're out there. It's got to go. You, you can't catch them if you're not fishing. So Sudan though. Okay, that's the next one. We'll uh, we'll have to do a follow up. And... Uh, uh, yes, I'll I'll send you. I'll, I'll post some pictures of Port Sudan. You can check it out. Right on. Come up with some good questions to ask. Well, sounds good, Corey. I certainly appreciate it, man. All right, man. Appreciate you. All the best. All right, there he goes, our good friend Corey Knowlton. As we were all over the map during that conversation, but uh, I found it to be very interesting. Hope you all enjoyed the topics that we hit on today as well. That segment of the show brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. Check out the Pulsar Helion. It's the monocular that I've got in my hunting pack. I use it for scouting both, heading to my stand in the darkness, and then glassing, I mean, throughout the rest of the day because thermal doesn't discriminate. Check it out. It's the Pulsar Helion, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. Unfortunately, just looking at the clock here, got to go, got to get out of here. Thanks to Corey as well as our other guest today, Jason Harden of Texas Parks and Wildlife. Thanks to you guys and gals for being here and being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying Merry Christmas, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Hey!